You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 180. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is no one, unfortunately. Sziasztok! Yeah, um, that means that I am on my own this week, which is a bit weird it really does feel weird but um, our um, recording schedule uh, has been completely mixed up with uh, a lot of us traveling and being all over the world so um, it means that it's just me this week however I uh, found um, a pretty good opportunity to interview someone uh, that is Sander van der Linden um, who is a researcher and uh, does a pretty good job in uh, trying to figure out how we can best tackle the issues uh, emerging from uh, the fake news world and uh, a world post-truth. And um, he will be talking about that. Uh, He's originally from the Netherlands and uh, he lived in the US and the UK. Currently, that's where he lives, in Cambridge. And uh, yeah, we had uh, quite a long chat about his works and I think it will be beneficial uh, for all of you, the listeners, to um, give a good listen to this interview. So, um, since... I'm on my own. Uh, I don't think I will do much more than that. But um, since this is a long interview, I hope you will enjoy it. And without further ado, let's crack on with that. Every now and then, we interview someone whose life and or work might be interesting to a sceptical audience and who represents either an organization within the geographical boundaries of Europe or a project with a wide international reach. Joining me today is social psychologist Dr. Sander van der Linden, who is a university lecturer in social psychology in the Department of Psychology and a fellow in psychological and behavioral sciences at Churchill College, both at the University of Cambridge. He and his colleagues have done important research into human cooperation in large-scale social dilemmas, including the acceptance of vaccination, climate change and the effects and workings of fake news. Sander van der Linden, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be on the show. Um, So I gather you have not been giving too many talks, interviews and the like uh, in the skeptical movement, have you? Not so far, no. So uh, I'm excited to be on the show. I haven't heard of your work earlier. And I'm very ashamed of that. (laughs) But I was listening to BBC's uh, Discovery podcast where you uh, said a couple of things that uh, started to interest me. And one of the things that you mentioned was, I'm not sure I have come across that very often before this, and it is pre-bunking. So what is pre-bunking? And how do you approach that? Pre-bunking is a term we use to, to really denote the opposite of the traditional debunking. And I think it works well because people understand that it's the logical sort of opposite of, of debunking. And the core idea is, is this, really. Rather than trying to correct a fact or a myth uh, or, or even a pseudo-scientific concept after the fact, what you do is you try to inoculate people preemptively, so beforehand, before they're exposed to the misinformation. And that's why it's called pre-bunking, because it emphasizes the preemptive nature um, of doing this. And it's really based on the psychological theory of, of what we call inoculation, and that follows the medical metaphor, really, that just as injecting people with a weakened dose um, of, a, of a viral strain triggers antibodies in your immune system to help confer resistance against future infection, we thought you could do the same with information, really, by exposing people to weakened versions of myths and falsehoods, and by manipulative strategies, uh, we can help people uh, cultivate mental antibodies um, and and gain some sort of cognitive immunity uh, against fake news and misinformation. And that's that's where it came from. Now, the term, you're right that people haven't been using this term pre-bunking very much. Um, I first heard it from a colleague named John Cook um, a few years ago, um, and, and he used the term pre-bunking 
and and we've been using it together since then. He can't quite recall um, who came up with it. Um, he, he's pretty sure somebody else did. That he heard it somewhere else, but we can't really retrace the the exact source of it. Um, so so I'm sure it's it's not been around, at least not in in a very prominent way. So that's where, partly what we're trying to do is introduce this sort of new science of of pre bunking. Mm -hmm. I am quite familiar with uh, John Cook's name. I actually was in a bit of a correspondence with him at some point because I was involved in uh, the Hungarian translation of the debunking handbook. Oh, wow. Yeah. But uh, for for some reason, this uh, word pre-bunking is not something that circulates very widely in the skeptical community. How familiar are you with uh, with the skeptical community, by the way? Well, I've I've written some uh, some blog posts for the, uh, I think it's called the Skeptical Inquiry. Mm-hmm. So, so that's about the extent of my familiarity. Uh, I generally know um, that it, the goal is to promote uh, scientific reasoning and debunk myths and, and, and forms of pseudoscience. So, so that's about my familiarity with it, and I think it's a great cause um, in in doing so. But I haven't been deeply involved in uh, in any other activities. So, um, so, yeah, so, so that's pretty much what I know. Uh, I've also written a handbook with with John Cook, so maybe that's where the the common connection is. And and I think he must have mentioned it in in passing while we were talking on about inoculation. But I don't think it's reached many audiences in general. In fact, so that's part of why we're trying to to introduce the uh, the science behind it. And uh, you have uh, published a lot of uh, interesting papers as well on this topic. For example, I've come across while um, trying to research before this interview that when the Paris Climate Accord was on. Around that time, your team came up with a paper uh, that was quoted on some of the the news outlets as well. And it was titled Improving Public Engagement with Climate Change, Five Best Practice Insights from Psychological Science. So can you tell us more about those best practices that you outline in that paper? Yeah, of course. So, so during, and I think that might have been uh, what I wrote with the uh, uh, skeptical inquirer for that. The, the, there were a few key elements that we distilled from all of the scientific literature on how to best communicate and talk with people about the science of uh, of climate change. And and really, the first important lesson was that the human brain experiences things. It prefers a sort of experiential types of information over analytical thinking, which sounds you know, to some extent, uh, you know, what we're trying to do here is promote more deliberative and, and analytical thinking. But at the end of the day, the way that the brain processes information is it has much more experience understanding the world around us through our senses. So, you know, people understand climate change through the weather, which isn't always an accurate uh, heuristic. Um, but the fact of the matter is that we often use our experience to, to learn about the world. I think Mark Twain once joked that a, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that's the, the essence of it. Um, and when we talk about climate change, we often talk about stats and math and science, and, and that just doesn't engage people that much. And so maybe relating climate change to, you know, concrete experiences, trends in extreme weather, uh, making it more, you know, real and concrete for people. So uh, more proximal and, and talking about impacts and, and local effects. So I think that was sort of the first big lesson. And then we go on to, to talk about a few others. Another important one is the social nature of it that we know people are social, right? We all have friends and family. We talk about important issues with our friends and family. And the fact is most people don't talk about climate change. And we have a a paper in um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that came out last week where we highlight the importance uh, of the issue that that people don't really talk about climate change. And and we found that when people do, um, they're more accepting of of the science, uh, regardless of of your political affiliation. And so that's really the second big lesson that there isn't there isn't really a big social norm or even a consensus um, that this is something important for people to talk about uh, across, you know, different political parties, um, especially in the United States, perhaps a bit less so in Europe. But uh, it's it's definitely a big issue in the United States, what we call the, the climate silence, uh, almost. Um. There, there's, many, there's many more lessons, but, but the, these were two important ones. So uh, your research shows that people don't really talk about climate change. Well, yeah, that's part um, of it. So when we do these sort of nationally representative surveys, uh, particularly in the United States, mm-hmm. and we ask people, you know, how often do you talk about climate change with your friends and family? The numbers are very low. You know, people don't really talk uh-huh. about it uh, with their friends and family as a, as a point of, uh, of conversation. And that has to do with the fact that it's so politically polarizing in the United States. States that people prefer not to say that they believe in climate change or that they accept climate science or that they 
think the government should do more about it. So people remain quiet on the issue. And what that creates is a psychological effect that uh, when nobody talks about it, there's this implicit sort of belief that it's not important because nobody's mentioning it. Um, And when people do mention it, it's all negative, you know, that people don't believe in it and they're polarized and, and so on. And so people really don't discuss it enough. And what we found in the paper is that when people do discuss it, with friends and family, so people whom they trust and and respect, so not people they see on the TV or, you know, strangers that they don't like necessarily. When people have those conversations with trusted members in their own social network, that leads to greater acceptance of the scientific facts. Okay, so that means that basically we are dealing with a window of opportunity there because... And correct me if I'm wrong, but but how how I see it, based on what she's just said, is that it might help people to change even their minds if if that can be that their minds have already been made up, but because they have not expressed that to others in a social context, they might be more ready to change their mind based on the science because they can do it without losing face, right? So is that a complete incorrect interpretation of the the, the situation? Or, no, no, I think that... Or, th- does it make sense? I think that's part of it. Yeah, I think that's part of it. So to give you an example, you know, in the US, it's very much polarized along the liberal conservative uh, spectrum. But what's interesting, and some of the research shows this, is that about 30% of, of conservatives actually believe in climate change, ah. but they don't express it publicly. And so, you know, if you're if you're a conservative and you don't feel comfortable talking about climate change because you think, you know, everyone in your group will make fun of you or, you know, uh, be bothered by it, ah. you won't talk about it. But once they learn that actually many people in their group might be fine with that, um, that creates the possibility for a real conversation about the science. So, I mean, from the paper, we can't say what actions people are taking and, and, and you know, if they've changed their behavior. It was just about whether people accept the science more. Um, but, but that's what, what, the, uh, what we found. Um, yeah, and sometimes people don't want to lose face. Um, and sometimes, you know, people just not engage with it. It's not an issue that people talk about because, uh, you know, it's science. It's not come, doesn't come up during the dinner table. Um, but when someone that you care about does press you on the issue, you know, let's say one of your friends starts talking to you, but I mean, you, you might be engaged. But let's assume you were not engaged with the issue of climate change. And one of your friends just starts talking about it and saying, you should really be doing something about this. You know, that's something you might feel like, oh, this close friend of mine is, is thinks this is really important. Maybe I should think it is important too, uh, or at least read up on it. And that's kind of the idea behind it. Then, then comes the second stage when all you have to make sure is that you're not being a dick. And uh, <laughs> this, this, this is a common phrase used among skeptics, that when you try to um, convince someone of of what the science has to say about a certain topic, then you should just try to to be polite and and not hurt anyone's feelings in the process. That's right. Yeah, but it's 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 fascinating that uh, that that you found that. Do you have specific uh, research in that field from Europe, or, or or it's mostly concentrated on the United States? Um, yeah, that's a good question. It's a lot of it is concentrated on the United States, just because science skepticism uh, is well, or you know, uh, skepticism about well-established science scientific facts is just so much higher there. Um, so it's been more of a priority to to focus on on understanding why that is the case in the United States. But we, I've done some stuff in the United Kingdom. Um, where, you know, the skepticism of the science is a bit, is a bit less, but generally the same conclusions apply there. And, uh, continental Europe is even less polarized. So there are certain countries like Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom that are actually quite high in their skepticism of climate science or, or denying the science. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think that's, that's, that's less so in, in continental Europe. I think in Europe, people are more polarized over the solutions and how much to invest in it, but not so much on the, on the basic scientific facts, which I guess that's a good thing. Uh, but then again, you know, the, if the biggest emitters are not on the same page about the science, that's, that's still concerning. So I guess that's why we focus quite a bit on the United States. Ah, okay. But there are other topics that uh, have a strong connection to this area. And uh, one of them is vaccination, the context of yeah. which I heard you uh, give that interview to uh, BBC's Discovery. So with regards to vaccination, have you got more data? of uh, how accepted it is and uh, many different organizations and many different surveys uh, have been published uh, on that but um, 
you did deal with that as well. Yeah, and some of these lines of research are related. So, so some general questions we ask is why why are people skeptical of science, and mm-hmm. and and why do people deny science? What kind of beliefs and worldviews lead people to reject scientific evidence? What's the psychological motivations for doing so? You know, across these sort of issues like vaccinations, climate change, GMOs, um, and then what can we do about it? Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, as you said, lots of reports have come out. It's really surprising that you know skepticism about or vaccine hesitancy is so high in in Western Europe um, compared to developing countries where people, Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's an interesting contrast. And uh, the the reason people have floated, which I think makes some sense, is that in a lot of developing countries, you know, people see the benefits of vaccines firsthand because, you know, they're dealing with a lot of uh, terrible issues and vaccines are saving lives. Whereas in Europe, these diseases have been eradicated for so long, people kind of have amnesia about the importance of, uh, of what happens when you don't. Um, have a sufficient proportion of the population that's vaccinated. Um, so I think it's it's interesting that skepticism is on the rise in, in Western Europe about such an important issue such as um, vaccines. And one of the things that we've looked at in, in all this research is how to protect people from you know, being exposed to harmful misinformation. And, and funnily enough, the vaccine metaphor actually works pretty well for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how do you see that happen? I mean... In the institutionalized educational system is where you think it would fit? Or whose who's job is it to inoculate the general public? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, and we've had some debate about this. So what we did, the theory that we're working on and this idea of psychological inoculation, ultimately, we think it would be most beneficial if people were to use it to, to help themselves and arm themselves against fake news. And part of the reason why we built this game called Bad News is so that people can play it, uh, learn about the strategies and techniques that are used in the production of misinformation. So basically what we're doing is we're exposing people to very common techniques that are used to, you know, basically fool people online, like conspiracy theories and polarizing people, the use of emotions and arguments. And what we find is that, you know, people become more skeptical um, of, of uh, basically misinformation uh, after they play this, this intervention. And we have lots of different forms of this intervention. But what we hope is that people can use that and share it amongst themselves. Uh, and, and, and the idea is really that we help empower people uh, to guard themselves against misinformation rather than there being one actor that's in control of, uh, of what are the facts and, uh, and what is, what is myth, um, sort of say. Having said that, we do work with companies, for example. We work with WhatsApp um, on creating a special version of this game for them because, you know, misinformation on the WhatsApp platform has led to mob lynchings in India and all, all sorts of horrible other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, an opportunity to practically implement it. We work with uh, the government in the UK. Uh, we've translated this game in 14 different languages and they're currently live so we can do large-scale cross-cultural testing of the empirical evidence. Um, and so it, it, it's definitely a practical tool that we've put out there and we do advise organizations on, on how they can help people. But we do feel that there's lots of historical evidence that shows that um, there is reasons to be hesitant about regulating free speech and, and legislating uh, what is false and what is true. Um, for example, you know, sometimes it gives um, certain authoritarian regimes a, a carte blanche to crack down on uh, on freedom of speech oh, yeah. uh, when these things pop up. So, so I think it's a very tricky issue about who should be inoculating. We hope that people can use it to help themselves rather than getting to a situation where people are being forced uh, to do something. For example, in the context of vaccinations, there's been an interesting discussion of whether the government should be mandating people to get vaccinated and find people if they don't. So yeah, so so in the first instance, we hope that we can use, design these tools to help people um, be better consumers of uh, online news media. But if if that doesn't work sufficiently, or if there's, you know, people, you know, getting hurt, otherwise, I understand that there is a need for, for more serious interventions. 
um yeah uh, in- including uh, debunkings and the like but that has been shown not to be uh, particularly um effective hasn't it yeah yeah and there's a good reason for that it's something we call the the continued influence of misinformation so once you've been exposed to a myth or a falsehood it 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 takes root in your memory almost almost like a virus in a kind of way mm-hmm. so it, it occupies all of the networks in your memory and then it becomes very difficult to correct that so even when people are exposed to corrections and myths um they continue to believe in the falsehood and that's what's called that's why it's called the continued influence of misinformation sometimes debunking can help a little bit but sometimes it actually reinforces the myth because what's happening is that you repeat the myth for people yeah. so you're strengthening the memory associations and people forget about the correction and that was really why we started looking into this idea of pre-bunking is there a better more effective way uh, to do this and the answer was well you need to get there first essentially you need to protect people preemptively before they're exposed to the uh, to the informational you know contagion or, or a myth or or falsehood so in general I would say I would I like to think of it as a as a multi-layer defense system if you can pre-bunk and inoculation should be the goal to preemptively protect Mm -hmm. let's say european citizens about being misinformed in elections on science and all sorts of things if that doesn't work go in and do real-time fact-checking and all of those great organizations are doing important work to fact-check and and correct things real-time that's right if that doesn't work then try debunking as a third layer of uh, of defense and if that doesn't work you know there's you know, there's there's talks about all sorts of regulations and things that that are sort of hard measures. Um, but but we like to think of this sort of softer psychological interventions that can help people uh, in a, in a sort of this three layer sort of defense system. And it's absolutely fascinating how how much similarity there is between the spreading of of these falsehoods and false ideas and the spreading of viruses. So I I really love this um, this idea of pre-bunking and the inoculation. The word it's itself really really shows that how much of a similarity there is but you did mention bad news which is um, an app that you came up with and and you developed but you didn't mention what it does actually so uh, if someone comes comes across bad news I mean the your your application what does it do so basically how should we imagine it? Yeah, bad, bad news is a pun, of course. It's a great example of, uh, of you know, ha- as a scientist having a theory and then getting an opportunity to implement it. It, w- it was designed in collaboration with a Dutch anti-disinformation platform called uh, Droch and uh, a design studio called Kuzmansen. So there's lots of parties involved. But the end product, I think, is really nice. And what it does is that it lets you step into the shoes of a fake news producer. So you go to the, the website, it's, it's getbadnews.com, and, and it's a browser game. Essentially what happens is that you're being asked to step into the shoes of a fake news producer and to become a fake news tycoon. And so the first part of your screen will show a follower meter and a credibility meter. So you're on Twitter, it's social media, we're, we're simulating a social media environment for you to make it realistic. And basically what's happening is that you're supposed to attract followers uh, while maintaining your online credibility. So you can't be too crazy. <laughs> and it's based on the idea that preemptively exposing people to weakened, you know, using a bit of humor, uh, versions of online deception and manipulation techniques like conspiracies and then polarizing people and the use of emotions, um, you know, creates mental antibodies against fake news. And there's six badges in the game, levels that you can earn. And the first one is impersonation. So, so this is about, you know, coming across content on the internet and just being duped by, uh, by it because it's not really actually the person you thought it was. So for example, in the game we use Donald Trump as an example, popular example. So basically your goal is to impersonate Donald Trump online. And you start tweeting some stuff out, and what we've done is we manipulated the Twitter handle, so it's Trump with an N instead of a instead of an M. And on the first go, m- m- most people miss it, you know, on the on the first go. Uh, but by by when they complete the level, they they kind of understand what impersonating other people is about. And and this these are all fictitious examples, but they're based in reality. So Warren Buffett's account was hacked, for example, the investor, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was it was two T's instead of one T. And yeah, they were tweeting out investment advice like. Like invest in what makes you happy. Um, and so, you know, there, there's real damage in that if people start thinking, oh, Warren Buffett's saying that, so, you know, I'm going to invest in this nonsense stock and lose all my money. Um, and so, basically, that's that's what it's based on. And there's other things like, you know, buying bots and, and, and amplifying your online presence and echo chambers and creating 
your own conspiracies. And it's all done um, in, in, a, in following the analogy. We're exposing people to a weakened dose, not so strong that you actually start believing in the fake stuff, uh, but ridiculous enough that you can understand and learn the lessons. And then we test people, you know, before and after in the game with lots of different fake items and, and real items and, and see how people do and how they improve. I like to use a, a magic metaphor to, to sort of explain why we do it the way we do is when you go see a magic show the first time you tend to be tricked by the magician's sort of act, right? Because you don't know how it works. And then there's really two ways that we could debunk the, the illusion act. One, or pre-bunk, I should say, in this context. Uh, one is you, you, you give people the facts, this is how it works, and people won't be fooled by it again. And that's kind of the standard model. Mm -hmm. But the other option is to let people step into the shoes of the illusionist. And, and really, you know, what better way is there to learn how something works than to do it yourself and get into the mindset of somebody who's trying to, you know, pull one over on you. And that's really what we're trying to do. And that's why we think it's somewhat novel. Um, and, and we're happy that the evidence so far uh, kind of supports the approach. And, and that's, that's, that's sort of the reasoning behind it. Yeah, I, I find it all fascinating, absolutely fascinating. However, there is something at the back of my mind that makes me ask, are there any fail-safes built in this system so that it doesn't derail and send somebody off on a track that, that they actually become the very people, the fake, fake news producers uh, that, that we try to avoid? So how can you avoid that with uh, with this with this app with this um, mm. thing that you developed yeah so so essentially the question is are we creating you know fake news producers uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> troll farms by, by by accident yeah um, so essentially it's kind of like a, a negative side effect that you could get from the uh, from the vaccine ah, okay. almost yeah so we have thought quite deeply about this mm -hmm. and we have decided to gather more data on this because we, we haven't gathered data on what people do after they leave the game, but we think it's important to try to figure out what people are thinking, uh, you know, when they, when they leave the game. But mm -hmm. the way that we try to, to, to build in the fail safe, so to speak, is, is this. There, there's two reasons why people spread real fake news. Two main ones, at least. One is financial and the other is political. So we don't provide people with any financial incentives in the game. There's not really any lessons about how to get rich spreading fake news. And the political side is uh, the game is not political. So it's it's ideologically balanced. So you can make fun of the government. You can make fun of big industry. We wanted to engage everyone across the political spectrum. So uh, there's no attempts really to uh, to influence people in a political way. But also in the game, what we hope to, to show people actually is that a lot of fake news is about aggravating existing political differences and that really doesn't matter uh, what side you're on everyone's being duped and so we try to take away these two motives uh, that are responsible for for most of the the actual spreading of fake news and the other thing is that it's not a game that shows people how to build a, a fake news farm um, there would be another type of uh, game it simply demystifies existing techniques for people that are being deployed against people and we kind of try to demystify them and help people identify them so it, it has hasn't been a huge concern, but we do recognize the need to follow up with people to see if uh, you know what people are doing. And, and I, I suppose with any invention, there's always a small probability um, that somebody goes and does something nefarious with it. You know, think about nu the nuclear bomb. Yeah, yeah. But that didn't really preclude us from making it available to uh, to the public. We think the benefits outweigh the risks. And following the metaphor, really, I think this is the important part. If enough people are vaccinated, uh, then the few people that spread the virus. Can can't get through because there's this idea of herd immunity, mm -hmm. right? If enough people are are, are not are no longer susceptible, it's okay if a few people um, are, um, are are not convinced or or deliberately trying to spread fake news, and that's what we're hoping to to get to. Um, but we we do continually test these things, so it's definitely something that's uh, that's on our minds with different versions that we build. Of the game, we do extensive sort of pre-testing and make sure that uh, it doesn't accidentally make people believe something that's false. And we have extensive ethical reviews and things like that. So we do actively think about it, but we deem the risk to be low, relatively. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. I mean, uh, it's brilliant. The, the whole idea I find very unique. So are you uh, already in the stage of uh, gathering all that data, uh, that the, the follow-up on, on, on how people's behaviors change as a result of using bad news? Uh, no, no. So we, we, we have done testing in the game, so pre and post. So mm -hmm. we give people mm -hmm. fake and real items pre and post, and we've published uh, this paper with about 15,000 people who opt in 
give consent to participate in the scientific research. And we found that the game mm -hmm. works pretty well. We've done randomized trials. So we've started to, you know, randomize people to, to play either Tetris or, or our game to see, to make sure that it's not just, you know, playing a game. Oh. We had a fantastic comment from one of our participants. Yeah. Yeah. We found really strong evidence actually that it's, that it's our game specific because nothing happens in a Tetris condition. Uh, <laughs> but, but somebody did uh, write us saying, is this what Cambridge University has come to, making people play Tetris? Uh, so uh, we thought that that was uh, <laughs> an interesting an interesting one. They didn't know what happened in the treatment group, obviously, but but still, that is that is true. We thought this would be a game most people would know. Uh, we have followed up with people over time. So Raccoon Martins, who is a PhD student, um, has uh, started to follow up with people one week after, two weeks after, three weeks after, five weeks after, because we anticipate that the effect would decay, like, you know, time decays most things, and especially in psychological effects, we would expect that people might need a booster shot or, you know, a replay. Um, but so far, we found that it lasts for about a month at least uh, pretty pretty well. And then it starts uh, it starts falling off a little. So there there might be a need for people to come back. And, and uh, you know, just as you, sometimes you need to go back to the doctor and get another shot, mm -hmm. we think that that's, you know, the same thing that's happening here. We can't do much outside of the game environment because of GDPR regulations, because uh, um, yeah. we, we, we don't collect any personally identifying information from people, not even IP addresses, nothing. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we'd have to, you know, I don't know, ask for people's Twitter ID and, and, and see if they spread fake, less fake news on Twitter or, you know, contact them, which means that we have we would have their contact info and none of that is... Um, compliant with GDPR. So we've not uh -huh. uh, done any of that. And we're not planning on doing any of that. We have talked to the European Commission about in the United States, they can do that in other research. So, you know, to, to some extent, scientific research is is limited uh, by by what we can actually research. Because the thing is, social media companies, they have all the data, they can do whatever they want. But you know, if we want to investigate how stuff influences people, we can only rely on, on of course, a, a limited set of tools that we have as a, a scientist, uh, which I think is a good thing, but but also presents limitations in terms of what what we can actually uh, test. So I think it's interesting. Um, mm -hmm. That's something that we are uh, thinking about. But I would say that they are doing some of this stuff in the United States. So, for example, they give people plugins in their browser, and then the the browser admits. URL links back to the researcher and they can see what websites people visit and so on. So um, we can't do any of that here in, in, uh, in Europe, but it, it is fascinating research. When we're talking about the inoculation, psychological ino inoculation, equipping them with the means to avoid being uh, deceived, basically, what can others do? So what other means you see in this effort of inoculating the public? Yeah, well, I think people can help each other. And something that uh, we are looking into is something called a post-inoculation talk. So, so it's basically, are people sharing the vaccine? And it's funny because the game went kind of viral on Reddit and they crashed our servers for a few hours because there was too much traffic. <laughs> yeah, and they called it the hug of death or something like that. Um, and so, uh, because, you know, there's this sort of uh, positive sentiment and people start liking it. But but we are interested in, in the sort of post-conversations about the what do people do with it? Do they share it with others? Because I think there's a real opportunity for people to help each other, you know, that if you see somebody else being misled because you recognize the technique in a political message or advertising, think about things like um, micro-targeting, you know, targeting people with... Uh, personalized information because you've scraped their, you know, online digital footprints. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of stuff we also talk about with the EU is that we can't answer some of the questions they have. So we can, we come in as, as expert witnesses sometimes, but it requires a similar kind of research to try to find out how to, how to protect people from these things. But we hope that inoculation, you know, can help protect people from, uh, from some of these techniques and people can share it with each other in a democratic sort of way. You know, maybe that's a kind of an idealistic way of thinking about it, but we try to give these tools for free, um, and leave them out there and hopefully people can, can share and use them. And we know organizations are interested in them. So, you know, organizations that pro, uh, uh, science around vaccines and, and, uh, and try to fight, unfounded skepticism we're thinking of maybe creating a special version of the game that's really focused on educating people about the most common myths about vaccines because in a very similar way uh if you look at history the argument's always the same and it's always the same technique so we can do the same thing we can boil down 
the sort of big complex topic to the key strategies that are being used, uh, and then and maybe inoculate people um, against against those strategies for you know different purposes and and different organizations that then can use it as a as an outreach and uh, and hopefully uh, a tool. The game engine is flexible, so we can stay ahead of the game, and we're hoping to do that. So, for example, the EU is very concerned about deep fakes. Yes. So basically, you know, fake Obama and and things like that. Um, and you know, they're always asking us, "What are you doing about deep fakes?" And, um, you know, the, the answer is, well, not much at the moment, but we can certainly think of um, adding a level to the game, mm-hmm. you know, uh, taking impersonation, because it's really taking the impersonation badge to the next level, for example. It's, it's yeah. impersonating somebody and you have no idea that it's fake. And so how can we help people spot deepfakes and inoculate people against being duped by by deepfakes? Definitely something we can think about, uh, something we can test and, and help people. And so to answer your question, I think other, other initiatives are useful too. You know, we talked about fact-checking, debunking. Um, social media companies can tweak their algorithms to demote false content. Uh, Google has taken various initiatives to eliminate hate speech from auto-search or, you know, promote scientific... Uh, at least they're thinking about it, promoting, you know, pro-science explanations. Um, they still haven't done this, and I'd love it for, for them to do this, is that when people Google is global warming a hoax, it, the response would be, um, did you mean I want to learn more about the science of global warming? Um, they haven't, they haven't implemented that sort of feedback yet. Um, but, but they've shown some interesting things around, um, you know, when people search for ISIS videos on YouTube and uh, something to call redirect is is redirecting people to, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to to other kinds of interventions to to try to prevent. So I think there's lots of uh, uh, good options on the interface between technology and psychology. But but what we're trying to get the word out essentially is that a lot of these problems are caused by technology and by the fact that people hadn't thought about the psychology of how people interact with technology echo chambers you know filter bubbles fake news mm-hmm. um so we're, we're trying to show you know research on the on the sort of the nexus on the interaction between humans and how they interact with technology and how you can use technology to promote more positive interactions online versus uh, you know creating creating more problems this is absolutely brilliant. But do you seek out any collaboration with uh, uh, social media companies as well, or or you don't necessarily want to get involved with them? It, it really it really depends. So when we feel again, we're this big team between the the guys in the Netherlands, the Dwarf organization, and the other partners that that we work with, and it really depends on the nature of the because they do outreach as well on their own that that we aren't part of because it's you know doesn't have a scientific sort of component. But yeah, when there's an opportunity for us to do scientific research we're happy to get involved as long as we feel that uh, it's not being used for you know a political purpose or some some other purpose you know i can we, sometimes we're definitely you know you get approached with an idea and we think you know there's just there, there's nothing scientific there so that's not interesting for for us and it wouldn't do the public you know any good so so we try to only engage in partnerships that are useful but for example with whatsapp we recognized the concerns they have, people are dying, you know, they have end-to-end encryption on their platform, um, so they don't moderate content, so they're looking for alternative solutions. They provided a really interesting way of, of collaborating. They said, you know, we'll give out donations, we won't have anything to do with the research, we won't give any access to WhatsApp data or anything. Uh, it's just an independent sort of academic collaboration, um, and uh, and that's been really interesting. So we've created a special version of the game for WhatsApp, because it's different from Twitter. You get messages from people you trust, and you network, you're part of groups. So there's a whole group psychology thing going on there of being part of a whatsapp group mm-hmm. so we create a new version of the game uh, in collaboration with uh, whatsapp that we're going to test um, and so we, we do find that uh, pretty useful we do do consulting and presentations and outreach at most of these social media uh, and big tech corporations just to show them um, you know the research that we're doing and and get them thinking about how they could uh, be part of these type of solutions we do the same with um, various government organizations and ngos the medical officers uh, public health officers in various countries to try to help them think through combating misinformation. So, so definitely, we're definitely have our hands busy with all of these sort of collaborations. Um, I think it strikes a balance between can we can we do science and 
and and empirically evaluate things and draw some conclusions from it and at the same time help other people and do something uh, practical versus you know things that might be might be important things but but you know have no no scientific benefit so that's the trade-off for us often mentioning collaborations again um do you work with uh, schools as well i mean is bad news as an application or or as a tool uh, something that uh, can be or could be used in a classroom environment as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so before we had the online game, we actually had a, a board version of the game. You know, kind of a, we want to say Stone Age, but we uh, we so, <laughs> so 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 the trajectory was really we had this theoretical idea, and then we had people come into the lab and read articles, which is kind of what we usually do. And then John Rosenbeek, who's a PhD student at the university that that I work with, and he leads a lot of the, the game research. He said, you know, this is boring. People, you know, also people don't want to be told, you know, what's true and what's false. We need to engage people and and really think outside the box here. Um, and that's really where the idea of the of the game came from. I think it was, you know. A brilliant idea, uh, and we had a board version of the game that was similar um, that we went into schools with, and we tested students in mm. schools in the in the Netherlands, and that's how we actually started doing this. And we found that you know then we gave them some fake news articles about the uh, European refugee crisis that we totally made up. Um, and it was counterbalanced. So one had a kind of a liberal slant saying that we're, tr- we're treating the refugee camps poorly and it's all, it's all very bad. And the other was, you know, migrants are coming to the European Union and that's concerning. So we had these different frames, but they're both, they were both fake, but we wanted people to recognize these frames and, and the sort of, tactics that are being used to influence your emotions and the way you feel about information. And we found that the game worked pretty well in actually doing that by letting people step into the shoes of people who create these sort of uh, articles. And uh, and that's how we landed with the online mm-hmm. version, uh, simply because the, the the social media element is so important and we wanted to factor that in. Uh, but yeah, the organization, so Droch and Bad News, the Bad News guys, they, they do outreach in schools for sure. They do workshops with uh, teachers. Um, we have a partner in Sweden. The, the first translation of the game happened in Sweden at the University of Uppsala, and uh, they t- they're planning to test it in curriculums in, in Sweden. We get teachers who tweet, on my account all the time, they sort of tweet at me and say, like, oh, we're, we're using this in the classroom, and you see the kids with the iPads, and they're loving it, and the teachers are, you know, stats teachers or science teachers, and they're totally happy with the sort of interactive tool that they can use. And I just got an email now from a journalist who... Um, is going into classrooms and had some questions about the game. So it's definitely happening a lot. We've been trying to keep track of it, but it's a bit difficult to gauge how often it's used. But but it goes from primary schools to college-level uh, syllabi um, uh, from all the sorts of emails that we've received. We do have a version called Bad News Junior, and that's for kids. Um, and the main difference is, is that the content's more age-appropriate. It's shorter because, mm-hmm. you know, the, int- the attention span. <laughs> and it's uh, it doesn't have any adult content. So basically, you're taking over the mic from the school principal and school's out, and you start spreading fake news about the school. And uh, uh, same lessons, you know, but... Uh, but more for younger kids. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, that's be- that's being used too. It's absolutely brilliant. And you all do with this um, in the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab as an environment, as a, a framework environment, right? Which you are a director of. Yeah, I direct the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab and, and we do lots of research on lots of different social issues, but this is certainly a big strand of research that's kind of exploded. So, so, you know, yeah, yeah. we had a lot of students interested and a lot of researchers and a lot of, uh, resources. So we're, you know, it's keeping us busy and, uh, we're definitely thinking about that. We're trying to take it to the next level. We've recently started doing some testing in virtual reality. Um, and, uh, I, I've been really fascinated by, have you seen this Netflix movie Bandersnap? from um yeah it's from this fantastic show um that's basically has all these sort of uh, black mirror it has all these futuristic sort of uh-huh. episodes but the, the 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 key thing about bandersnatch is that you create your own show so while you're watching it you can with your remote you can indicate what you want the next step to be that the lead actor is taking in the in the movie and so you're creating your own version of the movie and when they filmed it they they had to film you know lots of different endings lots of different sort of scenes because everyone can create their own movie essentially and uh, uh we're really interested in in uh in doing something similar and taking the experiential interactive uh, idea to the next level we've talked to some guys at youtube um science channel one of a uh, huge science channel that that does animated videos to see if we can if we can do something interesting with that brilliant and what else is in the making what is 
the future um, in in your field of research? Yeah, so I, so I think, as you said, not many people have heard of this idea of pre-punking. So I, I think the future for us is at least to continue doing the research on the signs of, of pre-punking and really getting that out there as an alternative to debunking. And we're, we're pleased that some, uh, you know, it takes a lot of... Uh, European Commission, the U.S. State Department, and all of these these organizations that that put out these big policy reports, um, we go and talk to them, and often it takes you know quite a few meetings to to present all of the stuff and just get their take on this on this idea. And and as you as you may know, things move very slowly in the in the policy world, but uh, it is being cited now as a as a potential alternative thing for people to consider. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of attention is geared towards just uh, really expanding the scientific understanding of this idea of uh, of pre-bunking. But I think that's where the future is. Um, and simply because we need to take a proactive approach. And I think that's my, my also my personal opinion, that when it comes to vaccines, for example, every time it's it's such a big issue and, you know, oh, the, this manual spread that, that contained lots of myths about vaccines and now people are not getting vaccinated. And I kind of go, it's like, it's the same story every time. Mm-hmm. Why are we not pro- proactively protecting people from the stuff that we know is going to come eventually and uh, uh even when you talk to government organizations about big other big issues it's all reactive it's all reactionary after the fact and i think there's so much opportunity to try to have preemptive solutions in place um as as a first line of defense i think there's so much work to be done still on on how to do that and how to best do that um that uh, that's sort of where our efforts are going but but i, I see definitely the challenges are rising it's talking about deepfakes, the role of artificial intelligence, machine learning, digital footprints, people are mining data all the time, learning, connecting different data sets, learning information about people. And I think people are going to get used to the fact that you you are going to be targeted with personalized information. Sometimes that's going to be useful for, I don't know, book recommendations or, you know, other things that you're like, hey, that's it. <laughs> that's useful. Thanks. I hadn't thought of that. But other times <laughs> it's very, it's very unwelcome, right? Yeah. And so how, how, do, how do we help people discern the sort of new information and environment uh, that's sort of what we're focused on it's great great absolutely great stuff and uh, i'm absolutely not surprised that um, the associate association for psychological science named you as one of the rising stars of the field i mean i'm really hoping because you are doing your part of making a better future for all of us i think well thanks so much that's very kind so i'm really hoping that your star rises very high that's very kind so if people want to know more about what you do and 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 how you uh, what you come up with what what new things you come up with where can they find more (laughs) Um, Where should they try and find you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I am on uh, uh, Twitter, having to keep up with uh, technology. So people can find me on Twitter at Sander underscore VD Linden. So that's at Sander underscore VD Linden. Mm-hmm. Um, they can also find me on the Department of Psychology Cambridge website, Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. We try to keep everything uh, up to date there. Lots of news articles and popular sort of science readings that people may find interesting. And uh, people are also welcome to email me if they have questions or ideas or uh, invitations of any other kind, they're always uh, welcome. Even if they have suggestions about the game, we can send those to software developers and we're always happy to get feedback from the community and, and people's experiences. Great. By the way, that you mentioned uh, the, how you try to keep everything up to date on the website. I do think that the manifesto that you put out on the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab's website should be some kind of a curriculum description of uh, of every school <laughs> <laughs> thanks so that that is like i i i think that should be the core basis of uh our educational systems um for for the future to be a little bit brighter by the way how do you see the future are you optimistic about the future of humanity when it comes to all that things that you've de- you've done research into, <laughs> it's it's a great it's a great question. It depends on what we're what we're talking about. Sometimes I, I recently edited a book called "Risk and Uncertainty in a Post Truth Society," and I think a lot of the uh, people in the book who contributed um, agreed on the looming specter of post truth, but they they actually felt we were quite positive overall. And I do think we can help people navigate the the post truth environment. I think there'll be many more challenges ahead. 
uh, both technological and psychological. But I think I, I think we're fairly optimistic based on what we've seen from our own research and other pe- and other people's research that uh, there's something to be done about that. I'm more pessimistic and worried about the issue of climate change um, as an existential sort of risk if we're comparing the two. And you know, I've done. A decade of research almost on, on trying to understand people's behavior and, and their perception of it. And it's it's slow moving mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and I think I, I am, uh, you know, maybe more optimistic than a lot of my colleagues and that I do believe that people um, can adjust their behavior collectively uh, and engage with the future of the planet in a, in a positive way. Um, I know some colleagues think that the government just should just, you know, start regulating and fix everything because you can't trust people to um, to, to act now. Mm-hmm. And and uh, a lot of the research shows, actually, that so- sometimes the climate scientists, you know, they, they sort of think, well, once the weather starts changing, people will start changing their behavior. But that's that's not necessarily true because people will come up with other reasons why the weather is changing. And so yeah. I think it's uh, this is a big one for me um, also in my, my personal life and things that I think about is uh, – is is and that's that's why I continue to do research on it. So there's a lot of the nexus mm-hmm. between misinformation about things like climate change. Um, so I am optimistic. I think progress is being made. I just hope that we're making enough progress uh, and uh, uh, and that we can do something about it for uh, for our current and, and future generations. But but I would say that that is that is the issue that keeps me up more than than robots and uh, uh, evil robots <laughs> and uh, and AI and, and things like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, I do hope that you will continue to have every uh, all the reason to to be optimistic about the future. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yeah, please keep up the fantastic work that you do with your team. And. Uh, I I really I'd really like to thank you for coming on the show and talking about all this because I think this is a topic that we cannot discuss enough. I mean, we have to be as aware of all that as possible all of us. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Sander van der Linden, thank you very much. My pleasure. And goodbye. So, In the hope that uh, you liked the interview and you found it interesting, you might want to consider having Sander as a speaker at one of your events if you're around the UK. It's uh, It should be an easy thing to organize. And um, I do think he has a lot to teach to skeptics around the world, uh, and especially in Europe, since geographically that's where he's located. But uh, since, uh, apart from the fact that I am the only person hosting the show this week, this is already becoming um, um, one of the longer episodes. So I will say goodbye to you in the hope that uh, the next episodes will be featuring uh, all of us or at least um, a bit more than one person uh, hosting the show. So... um, On that very optimistic note, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can.